Isaiah reminds us, he says, for I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. You're listening to the sermon series, Matthew, the gospel of the kingdom, preached at King's Cross Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thekingscrosschurch.com. All right, verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the very word of God. Amen. Let's have a seat. Well, as we begin today, hopefully we come with reverence to God's word because this is the very word of God that we hold in our hands. Every bit of it is profitable for us. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, fully equipped for every good work. And this is also a good time to remember the importance of the Old Testament, that all of the Bible is one story. We must not fall into a ditch either way. Sometimes this can happen. There are groups, different religious traditions where there's been too much of an emphasis on the Old Testament. And then there's been the opposite. There are those who would have too much of an emphasis on the New Testament and neglect the Old We have to be careful of this because if we do that, that diminishes and neglects God's plan of redemption and it will cause us to have an incomplete understanding of who God is. As we finish out chapter two today, we see that every part of this narrative is undergirded. It's supported by prophecy from the Old Testament. And a very appropriate verse for us to have in mind as we study this is Luke 24, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
This is what happened. You know the story. As Jesus traveled on the road to Emmaus with the two men, these two men were just in awe of everything that had happened about Jesus. And then they're discussing it. And so Jesus comes and he takes this moment and this opportunity to show how everything in the Old Testament pointed to and culminated in his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so a proper understanding of God's word is important. And it helps us see why in our section this morning and really all of chapter 2, how all of this hangs on what was prophesied in the Old Testament. John Piper, he gives two reasons for why the Old Testament is important. First, it shows us who God really is so that we can know him and worship him. Since his character was revealed truly in the Old Testament as much as it is revealed in the New. Second, he says we can be thankful for the hundreds of promises in the Old Testament. He says, quote, let them wash over you as your blood-bought birthright in Christ Jesus so that every day you set yourself free from sin by the superior pleasures of the promises of God. It's well said. The superior pleasures of the promises of God. That's what we see in the Old Testament. And so with that in mind, we're going to be organizing this section based on the prophecies mentioned here. So, points for today are as follows. Prophecy number one, we see that Jesus was called out of Egypt. Prophecy number two, we see that there's some weeping and mourning because of what has happened. And prophecy number three, we see that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. So, number one, called out of Egypt. Verses 13 through 15. And as we get into this part of the story, this, is, this part of the story is probably not included, maybe it is, but it might not be included in your family worship on Christmas morning. Uh, usually, my family growing up, Katrina's family, we read through most of Luke chapter 1. We don't, we don't usually come to this section as much just because it's sad and disturbing. And as we come to this, we notice that gone are the angelic choirs. Gone are the wide-eyed shepherds. Gone are the wise men giving exotic and expensive royal gifts to Jesus. In place of that, you have a frantic escape in the middle of the night. You have Herod's murderous rampage, killing all the male babies he could find. You have a family trying to figure things out as they live in a foreign land waiting to return home. And when they finally can return home, there's a possible threat in Herod's son. And so they end up in a small country town, hopefully out of reach of anyone else who would seek to harm Jesus. This final narrative in the Christmas story really seems more like the Holocaust than the joyful events that we even just sang about. And yet in the midst of it, we learn two very important things. We learn that Satan is at work, but the plan of redemption will not be thwarted. Satan continues in his rebellion against God. that started before time began in his desire to work through evil men to cause havoc, chaos, and death, all in an attempt to alter God's purposes. However, all his attempts are in vain. 
Isaiah reminds us. He says, for I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. And so in the midst of this, we have the angel who comes to Joseph, who's afraid. Don't be afraid, Joseph. Don't be afraid, Mary. Our God is an everlasting God, and he does not grow faint or grow weary. Continue on. And so with verse 13, we pick up right where we left off with the story. The wise men had gone. Herod is soon to be on the rampage. And so again, we see the angel of the Lord coming to Joseph in a dream. Rise, get up, Joseph. You got to get out of here. Head down to Egypt because Herod is searching for Jesus in order to destroy him. So Joseph continues in his example, a great example of quick obedience. They left that night under the cover of darkness and he stayed there until Herod died. In doing this, the prophecy was fulfilled. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Egypt is about 75 miles away from Bethlehem. And then if you think they traveled some distance into the country to find a safe place, it'll be a little bit longer. Considering the transportation available to them at the time, along with having a young child, it would take them a while to get there. You might be thinking, well, why did they go to Egypt? Well, it seems like a natural place to go due to the historical situation at the time. When the Greeks were ruling this area of the world, they, they ruled this area before the time of Jesus, uh, before the events of the New Testament. Alexander the Great, he established a sanctuary for Jews in the city Alexandria. And during the time of Roman rule, this city, the city still had this reputation. In fact, the Roman historian Philo says that by the year 40 AD, there were at least one million Jews living in Alexandria. We don't really know anything about their time in Egypt, but understanding the historical situation of the time can help us ascertain at least as to why they went down to Egypt. Because they most likely heard, hey, there's a place where there's a lot of Jews. They may have lived in Alexandria. We don't know. Possibly. Now, people have made up all kinds of interesting stories about Jesus in his time during Egypt that really have no basis uh, in God's word or, or most likely not true. Uh, for, there's a story about Jesus as a toddler. He, he had, does, didn't need his swaddling claws anymore, and so he used his swaddling claws to cast demons out of other people somehow. Uh, there's also a story about when Jesus was... Uh, I guess he probably wasn't walking, but he, he was carried along through the city. If there were idols around, they would just crumble to dust because he passed by. They're, they're, uh, they're interesting, but most likely not true. What we do know for certain is that this is the means of the Lord. This is what God used to protect him during this time for them to go down to Egypt. And of course, another reason they had to go to Egypt and God's providence was to fulfill prophecy. And so we come to verse 15 with this very interesting statement, out of Egypt I called my son. And this is a quotation from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So there's a couple things to understand here. 
First, like many of the prophets, we've talked about this recently, we see an immediate and a future context. And the situation of Hosea himself is very interesting. If you haven't read the book of Hosea recently, uh, take time to read it. Maybe get part of a, 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 as you start the new year, get on a Bible reading plan so you can read through the Bible and you'll come to Hosea. The Lord used a real situation in Hosea's life for him to prophesy about Israel. The Lord told Hosea to go marry a prostitute that was unfaithful to him. And yet, even though she was unfaithful to him, he goes and he buys her back and he loves her, even though she had sinned against him. At the same time this is happening, Hosea is speaking of Israel's spiritual unfaithfulness. The Israelites had committed adultery against the Lord by chasing after idols and joining in with all the pagan practice and sin of the nations around them. And yet even through this spiritual prostitution, we see the Lord's call to them. Hey, repent, come back to me. The Lord sought after them. The Lord in his grace bought them back, redeemed them. He promises that Israel would return to him. In chapter 14 of Hosea, the Lord says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely for my anger has turned away from them. And in chapter 11 of Hosea, the Lord is reminding them of the mighty work that he did in rescuing them out of Egypt. I loved Israel. And so out of Egypt, I called my son. So that's the immediate context of what's happening. But here in Matthew, this is applied to Jesus. In Exodus 4, Moses tells Pharaoh, hey, Pharaoh, you need to let these people go. Why? Because Israel is God's firstborn son. That's how Israel's referred to in Exodus. But we know, don't we, that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. So both Exodus and Hosea are types pointing to Christ. The Exodus of Israel out of Egypt is a type pointing to Jesus' own return to Israel from Egypt. But it goes even farther than that, ultimately to the redemption that will be accomplished. If you're here on Wednesday nights, you know that this last Wednesday we saw that as Israel uh, journeying into the wilderness, they are given a test. Will they obey the Lord? Will they find their contentment in him? Will they trust him? The Israelites so often failed these tests as God's son. But Jesus was also led into the wilderness, wasn't he? He was tempted and tried and tested, and he passed that test with perfection. He is the only one who could perfectly complete everything that God had called Israel to do. Israel was adulterous. Israel was idolatrous. Israel was rebellious. But Jesus was the perfectly faithful, obedient son. And so he shows that he is the true son of God because out of Egypt I have called my son. Israel, you couldn't do it. You failed the test. There's no way you could. 
Brothers and sisters, us in here, we know we have failed the same test. There's no way we could. But Jesus could, and he did, as the perfect son. John MacArthur says here, as God had once brought the people of Israel out of Egypt to be his chosen nation, he had now brought out his greater son to be the Messiah. End quote. That's exactly what's happened here. It's amazing. It's amazing. That's the first prophecy. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Let's move to the second section, and we see prophecy number two, weeping and mourning, verses 16 through 18. So in this, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, they were able to escape by night, but in these next verses, we see so much depravity, so much evil on display with a power-hungry, with a paranoid, violence-loving king who would kill helpless young ones to stop a threat that would never materialize. And so the, the scene shifts back to Herod's palace, and he's furious that the wise men didn't come back to him and tell him where Jesus was living. He thinks he's been tricked by them, but that's not really the case. That's not true. They were just obeying the voice of the Lord to go another way. But Herod is furious. And the Greek word here for that word is in the passive voice. And so that tells us that this is the kind of anger that is blinding, that controls you. Have you ever experienced this kind of anger in your own life? You get so angry about something and then you lash out, whether it's physically in some way or it's with your words anger has controlled you and led you into further sin. And so this is the type of anger. Herod, his actions that come forth are done without thinking, and and he is fully given in to this strong anger that he has. Now keep in mind, Herod, most likely that we know, he didn't have a spy that was following the wise men. And so this spy didn't text him real quick and say, oh yeah, hey, those wise men, they're not coming back, just so you know. No, th- this, it would have taken probably a, a quite a while for Herod to hear the news that the wise men were not coming back. And so Jesus, Joseph, and Mary, they would have been long gone uh, before he realized this. And I originally thought that, you know, why did Herod try to kill all these boys. I I thought that he tried to kill all these boys so he could possibly kill Jesus. And that may be true. But I also think now that another possibility is that he did this in rash anger just out of the realization that he knows that he is not going to get Jesus, that he's gone. Either way, Both options are possible. You know, he picked boys two years and under based on the timing of when the star appeared. And so it seems like he has a target in mind there as well. So either way. But anyway, in telling us this part of the story, Matthew is also showing us right away a truth that comes all the way from Isaiah 53. And that is he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Even at the beginning of his life, he was despised. Even at the beginning of his birth, we see Israel rejecting him, both with the scribes and the chief priests and with Herod, the phony king himself. 
And Herod, of course, he didn't have any intentions in fulfilling prophecy. This is all outside his realm. No desire to do that. But as horrible as the situation is, we learn that this too was prophesied of, this time by Jeremiah. And so verse 18 again says, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. All right, well, what's going on here? Well, we first have to get a little context of the book of Jeremiah. Uh, do you know the nickname of Jeremiah the prophet? Yes, the weeping prophet. Why is he called that? Well, Jeremiah was chosen by God to be a prophet to the nation of Judah. And his ministry was during the reigns of kings Josiah, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. Jeremiah was extremely grieved and burdened over the wickedness of his people and the knowledge that he had that there was judgment coming. And it was soon going to come because of their ongoing sin. The people did not listen to Jeremiah's warnings. And so he cried and he mourned over their rebellion. We see this in chapter 13, verse 17 of, of the book. And so he's been called the weeping prophet because of the gloomy nature of his message and the grief that he expressed for his people. And God's own personal plan for Jeremiah was a plan of suffering and loneliness. But the Lord was never far from him. It's clear if you read through the book. And because of the impending judgment on Judah, the Lord did not allow Jeremiah to get married or to have any children. And so that may have added to his loneliness as well. But another way to look at it is really a blessing as he did not have to watch his family be torn apart and be taken off into captivity. But as we come to chapter 31 of Jeremiah, he is describing the great sorrow that is going to come when the Babylonians take the people captive. Rama, what's Rama? Rama was a town. It was a town about five miles north of Jerusalem. It was a border town. And it was the place where the Babylonians collected and gathered the people and organized them before they started their journey to Babylon. And so you can imagine the weeping and the sadness that would be in this place as families have been torn apart, people have been killed, and the rest are headed off to a foreign land, not knowing what their fate would be. Why is Rachel mentioned? We remember Rachel, of course, from our studies in the book of Genesis. She is the wife of who? Huh? Yes. The mother of who? Joseph? Benjamin? Yes. The grandmother of a man named Ephraim. Ephraim is often used in the Bible to refer to the northern kingdom. God calls the northern kingdom Ephraim. But her son, Benjamin, was a part of the southern kingdom. And so her name here is figuratively mentioned to represent all the mothers who would be weeping for their children. Matthew, Matthew brings her in to represent the weeping of the mothers 
who had their sons killed by Herod. There's a man named Matthew Poole. He was one of Spurgeon's favorite theologians, and he says this, This prophecy was literally fulfilled when Judah was carried into captivity. There was then a great mourning in the tribes of Benjamin and Judah for their children that were slain and carried away into captivity. It was now fulfilled. That is verified a second time. Here it is again. You know, the beautiful thing, though, that Matthew does not mention is that in the very next verses of Jeremiah 31, there is a literal message of hope. He says, There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. And we know that indeed, 70 years later, the Lord allowed people to return to the land. And we also know that through Christ, all of his chosen will dwell with him in the better country, the heavenly land that is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, the eternal rest, the eternal promised land that we will all be part of. But there's also a point to be made here about the horrendous nature of Herod's actions. And we don't know how many boys he killed. Some think it was a relatively small number just because the town of Bethlehem was, was small. But really, the number doesn't matter. Any murder of an image bearer of God is a vile sin. And so we may respond, and we should respond in horror at the thought of soldiers coming, going house to house, and killing all the boys to and under. But are we not justly horrified at the millions of babies who have been murdered by abortion? Every Wednesday, we gather to pray for issues around the world. And abortion often comes up in our prayers. This week, we talked about the rise in women who are traveling to other states to have abortions. Since 2020, this number has doubled from 40,000 in 2020 to 90,000 just in the first half of this year. So that's going to that's go up. 90,000 women traveling to different states to commit murder. Does that not horrify us? It needs to. Let's move on, though, and look at our final section with our final prophecy, and that's prophecy number three called a Nazarene, verses 19 through 23. And when Herod died, an angel of the Lord informed Joseph that it was safe to return to Israel. And Herod died, we believe, around the year 4 AD. Uh, so they were most likely not in Egypt for a very long time, a couple months to a year maybe. Uh, Joseph and the family head back, but when they heard that Herod's son Archelaus was reigning, Joseph was afraid to return. And so the Lord, again, in his grace, he came to him in a dream. He warned him. And so they settled in a country town called Nazareth. And in doing so, they fulfilled what was spoken by the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. And so what do we learn here? Well, first we learn of Herod's death and living a life of sin and violence often causes you to have a violent death. What did Jesus say? Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Not always, but it can 
can happen. And this is exactly though what happened to Herod. Josephus, he was the historian, a Jewish historian who lived uh, near the time of Jesus. He was born, they think, around the year 37. Uh, so just a couple years, potentially after Jesus had ascended to heaven. He was very familiar with the events that happened, and he wrote this of Herod's death. Ulcerated entrails, putrefied and maggot-filled organs, constant convulsions, foul breath, and neither physicians nor warm baths led to recovery. That's disgusting. Don't take that with you to lunch, please. Uh, that's, that is a death full of pain and suffering. But another account tells us that Herod knew that no one would be sad when he died. And so he arranged to have a number of distinguished Jewish citizens executed at the very moment of his death. When I die, you kill all these people. And in that way, I can guarantee that there will be mourning throughout the land because of my death. It's absolutely evil and vile. Unfortunately, though, the threat continued in his son. His son is name was Archelaus, and he was in some ways worse than his father. He was just as cruel, and he didn't do any of the building projects and infrastructure work that his father did. He executed 3,000 Jews the year after his father died. Now, thankfully, he was so horrible, even in the eyes of the Romans, that the Romans removed him as a king after only two years of ruling. So he wasn't there very long, but he still left his mark. And all of this was happening as Joseph, Mary, and Jesus come back to Israel. And so living close to the palace, living close to Jerusalem would be dangerous for any Jew. And so they go back and they live in the town where they came from, Nazareth. And this made sense, of course, to them going back to their hometown and removed them from the volatile area surrounding Jerusalem. But it also fulfilled prophecy at the same time. And so let's look at this prophecy. Very interesting, perhaps uh, the most interesting of these three prophecies, just for the fact, because there is no verse in the Old Testament that says the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. And yet we have these clear words from Matthew, that what was spoken by the prophets. And so what do we make of this? Well, first you notice that the prophecy was spoken of by prophets, plural, not just one. The other two in this chapter just mentioned one prophet, Hosea and then Jeremiah. But Matthew would have us understand that several prophets said this about Jesus, and yet we can't find it in the Old Testament. This situation, though, is not unheard of in God's word. In the book of Jude, Jude tells us that Enoch prophesied about the second coming of Jesus. And yet, if you go into Genesis and you read the section that mentions Enoch, there's nothing about a prophecy about this. It's not mentioned. And we know that the Lord chose not to include the book of Enoch in the canon of Scripture. And yet, we trust the words of God's servant, Jude. And I'll give you another example. Uh, you know the phrase, it's very appropriate at Christmas. You can finish it for me. It is more blessed. Yes, of course, we know this. So the question is, is where in the Gospels did Jesus say that? Let's take a little poll right here. How many of you think in the book of Matthew? 
Nobody. How many think the book of Mark? Still nobody. Well, you guys are being cautious. Uh, how many think the book of Luke? Oh, that got a couple. All right. The book of John? Yeah, that's a couple too. Well, I'm sorry to tell you that you're all wrong. You're all wrong. This is a bit of a trick question. This phrase is not uttered by Jesus in the Gospels. Not, not any of them. The only reason why we know that Jesus said this is because of what Paul tells us in Acts chapter 20. He says, Paul says, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And so I think you can see the point. If Paul said that Jesus said something, we know he said it. And if Matthew says that certain prophets foretold this about Jesus, we know they did, even if we do not have a chapter and verse for it in the Old Testament. Now, a little bit about Nazareth. Nazareth itself is about 55 miles north of Jerusalem, still there today. Today, the population is listed as about 75,000 people. In the time of Jesus, though, the estimates are somewhere between 400 and 1,600 people. So much smaller, much fewer people. And you really didn't want to be associated with Nazareth. Nazareth had a bad reputation. It was known uh, to produce people that were rough and rude. And so that's why Nathaniel asked Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Are you kidding me? Not from there. He was shocked that the Messiah could come from a place that had such a bad reputation. Spurgeon says here, Matthew meant that the prophets have described the Messiah as one that would be despised and rejected of men. They spoke of him as a great prince and conqueror when they described his second coming, but they set forth his first coming when they spoke of him as a root out of dry ground without form or comeliness, who when he should be seen would have no beauty that men should desire him. The prophet said that he would be called by a despicable title, and it was so, for his countrymen called him a Nazarene. Despicable title. And this insult followed Jesus. He's known throughout the Gospels as Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Nazarene. It even followed others into the early church. Paul was scorned as a leader of the sect of Nazarenes in Acts 24. You go into the early church a little bit. One of the early church leaders was named Jerome. And he said that in synagogues, Christians were cursed in Jewish prayers as Nazarenes. And he said in their prayers, the Jews would pray and ask the Lord to blot out these Christians from the book of life. And so that was an insult to believers in the early church as well. And so it was in Nazareth as the Lord ordained, that Jesus would grow up, that he would perfectly fulfill all the responsibilities of a young Jewish boy, then into manhood. And Joseph would likely pass away sometime before Jesus began his ministry. No one would be impressed with someone who came from Nazareth. And so as he began his ministry, he did so in the same way that he was born, despised, rejected, 
in great humility. So this morning we've looked at three prophecies that were fulfilled in the escape to Egypt and the return to Nazareth. As we come closer to Christmas Day, and as we worship Christ, the newborn king, how can this section of scripture be applied to our lives? Well, first, don't be envious of the rich and powerful. And you could put whoever you want to in this list. It could be celebrities. It could be politicians. It could be businessmen. It doesn't matter. The elite of this world are very rarely friends of Christians. Very rarely. And we see this clearly with Herod and with the high priests and the scribes. And so may we not think, oh, you know, if I only had their wealth, if I only had their position, their influence, then I could do amazing things for the Lord. Or if the Lord would only save this one really influential person, then imagine, imagine what would happen. What does God's word say? Not many who are wise in the world. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth has the Lord called. Jesus said, how hard is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? Hebrews 13 tells us that we are to be content with what we have. Do you think that the Lord really needs the rich and powerful like Herod or others to accomplish his purposes? No, of course he doesn't. Absolutely not. Now, does he use the rich and powerful to accomplish his purposes? Yes, he definitely does. He used Herod. He used Pharaoh. He used the high priests, the scribes, the Pharisees. He used them all. But he does not need them. Who does he seek? He seeks those who are humble and obedient, who say, here I am, Lord. Send me. It's not, well, if I just get to this financial status or I get this position of influence, then, then I can serve the Lord. No, brothers and sisters, the Lord in his sovereignty, in his ordination, he has placed you at this church in this time. He's given you a calling to serve the Lord here where he has you. Not to wait until you reach some goal of your own. We're all called to serve him faithfully and humbly as members of his body in this church and in this place where he has you. Secondly, don't fret because of evildoers. I want to read to you the beginning of Psalm 37. That's what we're told in Psalm 37. David says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. We're told that Joseph was afraid in verse 22. And yet the angel comes to comfort him, to lead him. Say, no, no, don't worry about that. Go over here. And we know that death still comes to the wicked, often more quickly than those who are righteous. Not always, but often it does. And you can rule over millions of people 
and you still have no power to extend your life. Job 20 verse 5 says, The exalting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless but for a moment. It's quick. And so we have to ask the question, well, where is Pharaoh? Where is Herod? Where is Hitler? Where is Stalin? Where is Castro? They're all dead in the grave. And as far as we know, in torment for all eternity. Sadly. But the Lord lives. The Lord reigns. Always. Sorrow may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And so, brothers and sisters, let us not fret because there are evildoers all around us. The Lord knows. The Lord is sovereign. The Lord is in control. May we remain faithful and trust in him. What does it say? Do good. Serve the Lord. Delight in him. And then finally, in times of grief and despair, run. Run to the man of sorrows. I'll read you again Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. As we've seen these last three Sundays, Joseph was born, sorry, not Joseph, Jesus was born into trouble. Joseph was too, but Jesus much more. He was despised and rejected as soon as he was born. He had a target on his head from his birth all the way until his crucifixion. Our Lord is the suffering Savior. And yet in his suffering, he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was killed as a sacrifice for our sin. And so brother, sister, run to Christ. Run to Christ with your sins, with your fears, with your worries and troubles. He knows us. He sympathizes with us. Don't hold anything back from him. Pour out your heart to him. Why can we do this? Because he had the same experiences as us, even far worse than we have ever had. We sang O Holy Night this morning. Uh, one of the verses that we didn't sing includes these words. In all our trials, born to be our friend, he knows our need to our weakness is no stranger. He is no no stranger to our weakness. That's very true words. May we have this in mind even as we celebrate Christmas in our, with our families, in our friends, in our parties and celebrations. I had uh, some, some friends at church blessed me with a, a book yesterday. And the book is a Advent devotional uh, by Paul Tripp. And I read yesterday's entry, and he had something very convicting to share, and I want to share it with you as well. Uh, the reminder was that Jesus was not born into a time of parties. He was not born 
to take a vacation as we may do during Christmas. He was not born to come into this great feast of amazing food that we may have at Christmas time. Now he was born to suffer. And Paul Tripp says that we should be sad celebrants during the Christmas season. That's an interesting, in, interesting two words. Celebrate with a sense of sadness. Be a sad celebrant. Remembering what Christ came to do. That he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And so we can so easily, as we've mentioned, we, mentioned, we probably mention it every Christmas, but we can so easily get caught up in all the parties and the good food and all these things that we forget that our situation and the blessings that we have is so opposite as what Jesus was born into and what he was born to do. Not even close. So maybe we be sad celebrants this Christmas. We can celebrate with joy and we can enjoy these times that we have with each other. But may we have the reverence needed during this time as well. And so, brothers and sisters, run to your Savior who is there for you. For those in here who may not know the Lord, maybe you're here out of Christmas obligation or some other obligation. Maybe you're trusting in something else besides Christ to save you. It's not going to get you anywhere. And so we would encourage you to run as well. But run to be saved. You cannot run to the Savior to be comforted. You're not in that place yet. No, you have to first run to him in repentance and faith and trust in Christ alone. Run in that way. Because if you don't, you're going to end up in the same exact position that Pharaoh, Herod, Hitler, Stalin, Castro are all in. You may not be eaten by worms like Herod was in his death. But what will be experienced after death will be far worse. And so our call to you is to run to the Savior. Salvation is offered in the name of Christ Jesus. So friends, we've had a really, I've really enjoyed our time going through uh, the end of chapter 1 and, and going through chapter 2 here with you. It's been incredible to see these prophecies that are fulfilled in Christ. So may we, as we started out, may we not neglect the Old Testament. May we not neglect the New Testament. May we continue to grow in our understanding of God's word as one big story, one big plan of redemption for God's people. Amen? Let's pray together and we'll sing. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful to be in your presence. As we're going to sing in just a moment, we ask that you, you would have your way with us. You are welcome here, Lord Jesus. And we ask that by your spirit that you have sent to dwell in us, that you would conform us to your word, to these things we've considered this morning, that you, Holy Spirit, would apply these truths to our lives, that we would have a desire to walk in them, that we would not be envious of those in the world, that we would not, on the flip side, be so scared and anxious of evildoers. But we would run to you as our suffering Savior, the one who understands our griefs and our sorrows.
you are our help in time of trouble. What a joy it is to celebrate you and your work during this Christmas season. I pray for each of my friends here, my brothers and sisters, Lord, that we would all, all of our families here, celebrate Christmas in a way that would honor you and glorify you, that we would be sad celebrants this season. Enjoy the truth of your word. Enjoy the family and friends. Enjoy how we can give gifts to one another. But doing so, always going back to you, the true gift that's been given to us, and really understanding the situation that you were born into. It's our privilege to respond to you now with song. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast, King's Cross Church meets at 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. at the campus on Lena Road. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, don't hesitate to email us at info at thekingscrosschurch.com. God bless.